0: Welcome to our podcast. This teaching is a part of our Sunday morning service at Garden City Church in Southern California. For more information about our church, visit GardenCityChurch.co. Well, welcome to Garden City. I see some new faces. My name is Brad. I'm the pastor here. Great to see all of you here with us. Um, We've been working our way through... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We were looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who um, are merciful, for they will receive mercy. We've we've gone through all of that. We've looked at relationships. We've looked now at the Lord's Prayer. This is going to be our last sermon uh, together in the Lord's Prayer. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the practice of fasting, which is going to introduce us into a challenge. I hope you're ready for it a challenge of 21 days of prayer and fasting. When God responds to fasting, he does something incredible that you couldn't even imagine. If you've never practiced the practice of fasting, uh, friends, if you're a part of Garden City, you are going to learn in the next 21 days when we start this next uh, sermon on Sunday, the, the following Sunday, that you are going to find very quickly how difficult it can be how powerful God shows up in the midst of that. And so as a church, we're going to give you ways to pray for those 21 days. Each day we'll have a different thing that you can pray. And then we'll even uh, do some like social media stuff, Instagram live prayers and things like that from uh, myself and some of our leaders. We'll go through that whole thing because we really believe that as we gear up for the next season, we're in September. Can you believe that already? Like, I'm trying to figure out where the summer went, and it's just gone, there it is, and we're already planning for Christmas. Like, I don't even want to think about that right now, but apparently we need to, and so we're going to. And then after our fasting series that we're going to do for a few weeks, we're going to get into another series called Rediscover Church. Why you are important to the body of Christ. And so we're going to reaffirm that through what does it mean to be the church, not just what is the definition of the church. Like what does it mean to be actively living as the church, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And so we're going to go into that after as well. And so I really believe that through this prayer and fasting that God's going to do something for us for you that maybe you've never seen before. Or maybe you've experienced fasting before and you remember what it was like and how difficult it was and so you're like, I don't know if I can really commit to that again because that sounds really difficult. But then we're gonna see what God is going to do corporately and also personally in our lives. Because we believe that through prayer and through fasting God can do things that we can't see because of how distracted we are by so many other things. How many of us are distracted I'm distracted this morning already because of all of these different things that have gone on this morning. It's like, God, why are these happening today? Like of all days, on the topic of confession, I've already had to confess to my wife my sins this morning. I've already had to confess to my kids this morning. Like, I thought that the, the lessons I had earlier in the week about having to confess to my wife and to my kids was enough. Apparently, I needed to confess again this morning. Confession is something that, um, as, as Christians, as believers, we all understand, like, it's necessary, right? Like, okay, I need to ask for the forgiveness of my sins. I need to confess my sins. And those things are, are very difficult also very necessary, and so sometimes we think, well, yeah, I can confess, I've done it before, Um, I came to Christ, I confessed my sins, I have salvation, I've been justified, I have all these great things, and my life is wonderful, and sometimes we don't always know that we need to confess sin, and so I've come to the realization that this is something we need to understand as becoming the real us. If we are truly who we say we are as followers of Jesus, as believers, as Christians, whatever term you want to use for you following Jesus, this is how you become the real you. Too often we find ourselves hiding behind the facade of Facebook, easily ranting on Twitter and Instagram, the influence of those things. People can often mask the misery of their lives by trying to live a good life, living up to a healthy moral standard, because appearing good is one way of dealing with the notion that something is wrong with us. And so in light of that, would you turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13. And when you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We wanna honor the Lord here this morning. After I've read the verses out loud to you, I will say this is God's word. And then in response, you can say thanks be to God and then you can have a seat. Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God amen. You can have a seat. Lord, as we have looked at your prayer, as you, as we've looked at these words that you've given to us, not that we would necessarily pray these exact words, although that is sufficient, but that we would have a mindset that is ready to pray these prayers, that we would be ready to submit to you as our Father, that we would be ready to hallowed your name, to honor you and to respect you, that we would also ask for your will to be done and not our own, that we would also seek to ask you for daily bread, the sustenance by which we can live and breathe. And right now, Lord, we're asking that you would help us to learn what it means for the moment of confession to take place in our prayer life as well. We come to you now with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this last week, the Christian world, the Bible belt, was rocked by some news of a particular pastor who had approached his congregation with the news that he had had unguarded and unwise relationships on social media. It was deemed by his elder board that they were inappropriate and he was dismissed by his elders indefinitely until they realized the time in which he could come back and continue to minister to his church. It is something that was ongoing, something that was investigated by a third party. They found that he had violated social media policies within the organization of the church itself, and if you ever look at anything, when a Christian does something wrong, and you immediately turn to social media, you will find a hellstorm storm of news and information of, I knew it was too good to be true. It's just another Christian who did something they shouldn't have done. And that conversation continues over and over and over again. And even just within the last two years, in this COVID pandemic thing that we've been experiencing, multiple high, I don't even like to use this word, but celebrity pastors have been, uh, had to resign from their positions as pastors because the things that they had been doing for so long went unguarded and they went unchecked by the appropriate people in charge by what we would call in the church as accountability, if you've heard that phrase before. And when you find yourself on social media looking at ways to justify, like, see, this is why I don't go to church, or the reasons of why, well, this is actually a really good thing that the elders did inside the church to keep this from going further than it should have, we often find ourselves... Becoming stressed and worried and anxious. And even as a pastor, as I've talked to many other pastor friends around, it's always this idea of what is going to happen next. Or the question is, who's going to be next? And without the unguardedness of the church, without the unguardedness of the spouse, we can often put a great deal of energy into maintaining this image. But this very appearance of goodness can be a way that we defend ourselves against our sin. Now, I don't know the specifics of that details. I'm thankful for how it was handled in the midst of other scandals that have been handled or not handled or mishandled And so I'm thankful for the elders of this church who have done appropriately what they're supposed to biblically, which is why we also have something like that as well. With Gabriel and Victor as elders, with uh, Jeff and Jim and JT and Chris as deacons, we have this surrounding accountability that we desire. And what we also realize that we have to come to terms with, not just as a Garden City church, but as the Capital C Church, is this idea of confession, Confession is one of the hardest aspects of our prayer life. Now, it's easy to confess our sins when we are by ourselves, driving in our car, on our way to work, on our way to school, confessing from our minds because we know that we can pray silently before the Lord. He knows our our hearts, our motives, and things like that. Very easy to confess like that. But often throughout the New Testament church, they call for public confession, Confession to one another. And so I wonder if the church has missed out on the power by which it has here in this kingdom to call other people into a different kingdom that cannot be destroyed or broken because so many people have built their own kingdoms up in the name of Jesus, only for them to be destroyed by the very powers that were built up by. And so I wonder if confession is the thing that is missing. But here's the thing. When we can't see our sin we have nothing to confess. When we can't see our sin, we have nothing to confess. So if I can go unchecked on this particular sin that I deal with, that you deal with, and it goes unchecked, I don't see it as sin anymore. I don't see it as something that is necessarily wrong with me. That is the effect of the entanglement of the sin that Hebrews talks about, the sin that so easily entangles us that keeps us from seeing the joy that Jesus had when he went to the cross. These are the things that cause us to see not our sin, but our justifying of our sin. We easily come to terms with this reality that sin itself can only be sin if we realize that it is something that we must confess. When you know how to delete your browser history, when you know how to hide your social media use by creating another account, People use this alias to hide and conceal themselves behind a different name. One account is used for all your beauty and makeup tutorials, right? You've got 40,000 followers on that, and you have to maintain that aesthetic and the image on Instagram. Your account is curated. It looks so cute with the perfect color palette that makes your life look seamless and perfect, polished without any blemishes in sight. But then you have another account that is strictly for trolling, for memes, for whatever it is. No one knows it's you because you have some ridiculous name attached to your username to throw others off the scent that it might just be you behind that account. In fact, a study was just done that on Instagram, one out of every five people who have an Instagram account have at least one or two more accounts attached to their email address. Now, some of this is, you know, a little small business, side hustle, things like that, but others are these things that keep them allowing themselves to troll to whatever they want to without needing to confront what is actually going on. And so you use that account just to argue and to banter with people you disagree with on you fill in the blank. I heard an interview recently about the power of algorithms. People are always talking about AI, artificial intelligence, robots are going to take over the world. If you've seen anything on social media about the Boston Dynamics dogs And they're walking around, and they're robot dogs, and it's like, okay, iRobot is like, actually, it's going to happen. Like, here we are. This is where we're at. It's the power behind the algorithm. However, in this interview, someone who is a, uh, a Ph.D. in algorithms, like that is an actual, like, thing you can go to school for. The algorithm and the power behind the algorithm is not the computer or the coding. It is the user who is using it. The algorithm exists only to intensify what you already partake of. It's not the source behind the way your feed looks. You are responsible for the way your feed looks, and so we try to justify the way our feed looks. Like, oh, that was an inappropriate thing. Well, maybe it's because you were looking at something inappropriate. Maybe you were involved in some like oh, algorithms. Like, let's just blame AI. They don't know what they're doing, but clearly you do, don't you? Don't die. And so when people find out that this is the source behind the way that the feed looks, we don't want to become responsible anymore for those things. You know, when I reach out to people or typically when I go golfing, I will will specifically go by myself at times. And I will always get paired with other guys who are there. Usually when you go golfing, it's like a group of four guys. And so I'm usually just one, whether I play by myself or I get joined and paired up with another group. So the first question on the first hole is always, what do you do for a living? Or maybe it's, you know, second or third hole. And when they find out that I'm a pastor, they're surprised by my response. But I think there's also a possibility of guilt being attached to that response Also, because then what happens is after the fact, they'll say, oh, yeah, I I used to go to church and, you know, I used to be Christian and I used to do the religious thing, but it's just not how I do that anymore. And so it's not my fault that you feel that way. There's something internal that makes you feel that. We often take what is external as a situation and blame our outrage, our fear, our sin on that when in reality, we must look within to see what causes that feeling of guilt and shame. Most people in this world believe they are good moral people. Well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I helped the old lady across the street. Is that even a thing anymore? I don't really know. How many old ladies are walking across the street? But if they do, we're there to help, right? The Christian's are always there to help. I put the shopping cart back where it belongs, not on the curb next to the open lane right there where I'm trying to park my car, knowing that I'm gonna bump the cart as I go to the store. You know who you are. Don't park your cart there. Like, why would you do that? Just stop. But it's no wonder people are offended by Christians and by the church and by God. Because the Bible tells us something very offensive. It says there is something wrong with you. And you're like, how dare you? Why would you say that about me? There's nothing wrong with me. But when you start to line yourself up with some of these things, obviously no one likes to hear that. But it also breaks down the formula by why it tells you there's something wrong with you. But also how to get out of it as well. The truth, the truth is that we all sin, and when shame, guilt, or fear consume our minds, we tend to hide. We've somehow universally agreed to sort out our issues in private so that we can keep up appearances in public, which is a tragic misstep because hiding is an agonizing lie. So what's the only alternative to hiding? Well, it's the refusal to hide? It's the terrifying insistence on exposing ourselves to God. That's the only way to open up ourselves to unconditional love because the curse of sin doesn't have to define us. Even when we make the most massive mess in all the cosmos, it's in that moment of realizing that what we've done, we can then run to the Father. The gift from our creator is that grace, not sin, that defines us. And that's the power of confession, God takes our worst moments and turns them into our triumphs. In the practice of confession, we excavate down to the layers of our life, uncovering beyond what is obvious on the surface, and we go deeper into the story of our own history. And so the reward of believing in grace and practicing confession is that the parts of our stories we most want to edit or erase all together actually end up becoming the very parts of our stories we'd never take back and never stop telling. That's the author of who God is. He works with the rough draft. He's not an editor. He's a redeemer. And remember that this morning. When you try to work your way out of confession without confessing, you find that Jesus is not an editor. He is a redeemer. He works with rough drafts, but he only writes redemption stories. And so we said a few weeks ago, in light of asking for God's will to be done, we've said we can't always trace the hand of God, but we can always trust the heart of God. We cannot trace what God is always doing in our lives and the things that we think we can trace by which he's trying to make himself real and lovable and compassionate, we would think, why would I do that? Why would he send me down this path? Why am I having this argument with my spouse? Why am I having to outdo one another in love when I wanna outdo one another in anger, rage? Anyone in here like rage like I do? I love rage. Can I just be honest with you? I'm confessing, is that okay? I love rage, okay? I love it. I'm good at it. I love anger. I'm good at it. I punch walls in in or I punch holes in walls, not now, okay? I'm redeemed. Okay, but when I was a little kid, my sister who would babysit me, she called me a little devil. It's because I was, but it's okay. I was, I was very angry. It was the thing that kept me from seeing the grace of God because I was so good at staying in my anger. I'm sure you're good at staying in your sin too, aren't we all? We're very good at finding ways to continue to justify our sin. You see, it's the power of confession that can keep us from trying to edit out the bad parts of our lives. And what confession does, here it is, is it allows God Listen, to be God. We often try to edit or spell check our lives in search of grammatical errors that are essential to the storyline. But God does not need us editing areas that he meant to leave in. That's what the Lord's prayer is. It's an invitation to let God be God. That's the first layer of confession. It begins at the moment of salvation. First John 1.9 nine. Maybe you've heard it before. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word for confess is homiligeo, which means to concede or to agree, to admit to what you are guilty of, what you are accused of. You've been accused of this. Well, I don't know. Yeah. To confess is to admit. It's to concede. There's no hiding this. There's no way out. It's the kid who gets into the cookie jar and is asked by his parents, did you eat the last cookie with chocolate all over his face? And he says, no, I haven't. Confession is when he finally is willing to concede. You see, the the idea of conceding means that there is a, a fight, an argument, a war going on. And to concede is to finally give up that you are trying to have victory in your own powers. We've been hiding our sin since the beginning. One of the first things Adam and Eve did after they disobeyed was to what? Hide from God. Genesis 3 tells us that. And so if we are left to our own resources, we will likely hide our feelings of guilt and pretend as nothing wrong has ever happened. However, a Christian's life can be made a lot more difficult if they find themselves in what I would call a spiritual ghost town a place where they feel they have nowhere to go because they are ashamed of their sin. And so often pastors get put on these pedestals as these perfect polished people because they do their hair in the morning. I'm I'm trying, okay, I'm, I'm growing it back out. Jeff has already called me out for that. Like, I confess, like, this is the awkward stage of my hair. That's fine, that's beside the point. But there is also this point where pastors become so polished and so perfect that they feel unapproachable. I hope I'm not that for you. If I am, come and let me know. Please, I'm serious, because I have been in far too many instances where the pastor has been unapproachable, he's got to study for his sermon time, he's got to do this, he's got to do that, and all the while there's sin hidden behind doors that no one knew about until things were exposed later on. That's the reality of what can happen when we allow ourselves to be the mayor of that ghost town. Because we'll continue to justify over and over again what good I've done for this, for this town. Look at what I've done. But it's a place where you feel that there's nowhere to go because of the shame of your sin. And so while being silent may help us maintain a positive self-image, it also keeps our shame ongoing and prevents us from making any progress. We may still be tempted in our hearts to run away from our brothers and sisters, to hide our sin instead of running to the very people God has given to us for encouragement, correction, and love. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. I have to say, Christians are good at rallying around other Christians who are dealing with a tragedy, Pray for you, start a meal train, like donate to the GoFundMe. Those are great things. The Christians are really good at that. Christians are good at rallying around other churches when disaster strikes and they come and rebuild another church or an orphanage or they they give supplies or things like that. Christians are good at rallying around other Christians who are experiencing financial hardship. We're good at rallying around other Christians that are getting the promotion that they prayed for. But rarely rarely are Christians good at rallying around each other who have confessed a deep and dark sinful habit. So we often think like, oh man, like should they even be in leadership then? Like isn't that sin just a little too much? Shouldn't we consider like, well maybe we should do something about this? And we kind of just like, whoa, I don't know if I can deal with that. Let me know when you get that promotion you've been looking for and then I'll celebrate you then. And then I'll walk with you through that. You see, one reason our hearts desire to run is because we want to hide our shame like Adam and Eve. And so often what happens is when we're not easily able to rally around that person, it's because we find ourselves doing the same thing. We find ourselves not wanting to expose our sins because you know when one person raises their hand to ask a question, the rest of the class is ready to do it too. And you're like, I don't want want to raise my hand, right? No one wants to be the first kid to raise their hand in class. Now, if you're homeschooled, you don't know what that's like. I'm sorry, I can't explain that to you. But I was homeschooled, so I I can say that. And so as you try to raise your hand, and you try to make yourself vulnerable, and you're like, well, I don't know the answer to that. All the other hands, they're like, I don't know it either. Imagine if you were able to be the one to raise your hand, how many other hands might go up. Not out of shame and guilt because they're trying to keep it secret, but because they're trying to see, do I have people surrounding me who can encourage me and walk me through this as well? But see, here's the thing. Even if that person doesn't know your sin, God knows that sin. He knew Adam and Eve's sin. He wasn't surprised. Instead, he responded with what? Amazing mercy. He wasn't like, gosh, dang it, you sinner. Like, Why would you, why would you do that? He responds with mercy. And what does he do? Genesis 3:21, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. He responds with mercy. He clothes them to cover their shame and to foreshadow the cross of Christ. And today we experience that same mercy from our Father who is in heaven. Nothing is hidden from God. Hebrews 4:13. And so we can try to hide and pretend But God knows every sinful thought and deed we can't hide from him. But even with that knowledge of our sin, Jesus bore the full wrath that we deserve, and now we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We can freely share our sin with God and others because we've been forgiven of it. What we usually have when it's attached to guilt and shame is not knowing that we are forgiven by God, but that we are wondering, like, what are people going to think about me? You see, Christ has already forgiven you of that. Romans 8.1, do you remember that verse? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there's always condemnation when I talk to a brother or I talk to this person about it. And so then from that experience, we stop exposing, confessing our sin. You know, we've been saying through the Lord's Prayer, if we want to replicate the life of Jesus, we must adapt to the lifestyle of Jesus. And often, if you've been here long enough at Garden City, these three things have become our mantra. We have these three things that continue to move us forward with our vision and our mission. It's these three things that will come up on the screen. It's to imitate God. That's what we desire. Because when we imitate God, we will then end up carrying on his ministry. The byproduct of being around whoever you're around is that you're going to become like them also. And so when we start to imitate God, it's carrying on his ministry that he gave to us during this time, even in the Lord's prayer. And then from that, we become like him in the process. Confession is the relational aspect implemented by a relational God. You can see in the very beginning of scripture, God meant for us to be relational. Not just to himself, but to each other. And it seems that we're losing our sense of belonging and experiencing growing feelings of loneliness and despair. And yet we learn that God's original plan for us was fellowship, walking through life together. That's why the Christian life is so difficult at times. Because we're not called to just walk it alone. We're called to walk it together. But walking it together means that other people are going to see my sin and I'm going to see theirs, and I don't know if I have the capacity to do that, but if you are a believer, the Bible says, bear one another's burdens, and so what? Fulfill the law of Christ. And so there are a lot of us that go through life alone because we've never had this kind of fellowship. By avoiding the light in the company of other Christians, we put ourselves in harm's way. So if we miss it so much when it's not there, what's stopping us because you see sometimes we prefer to live in the shadows because we take pleasure in our sin and we're not willing to give it up and only are we willing to give it up when we first have finally been caught in it because there was no moment of confession confession is not when you've been caught and then you do that thing Confession is knowing and wanting and willing to come clean about something that you've been hiding all along. And so it's normal to be hesitant about making a public confession of sin. And I'm not saying that from now on we're going to have you come up on stage and start confessing your sins to us. Now, if that's something you want to do, we can try to arrange that. But the reality is that there are people here that you can be encouraged by, that you can pull aside and like, yo, I I need some prayer. I need to confess something. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has been given to you that is uncommon to man. Meaning that whatever sin you are facing, whatever sin you struggle with, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of weird when you say, oh, that's the sin I struggle with. Well, I sin with a lot. Like, I struggle with a lot of sins. Like, I can't put myself in one category. I struggle with sin. I struggle with all of them. But when we can finally see that there's someone else in the room who's dealing with the same thing we are, what bond, what, what connection is made? That Christ is there in the midst of it, hearing our confession, but also seeing that this accountability is leading us to a certain conviction that we cannot conjure up on our own. It was David who had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You remember the story. If you don't, you can go back and read it in the book of 1 Samuel. And in that moment, or 2 Samuel, one of the Samuels, just read both Samuels. And David and and Bathsheba, they get together. David's supposed to be at war, and he's not. He's like, I'll just let them take care of it. He's not doing what he was called to do. He was sitting back. Idle time makes for idle time. I-D-L-E. When we're lazy, it allows us to really start to serve our idols a lot better. And so David's chilling on his roof all alone, sees a woman bathing, he's like, yo, hey servants, go get her, bring her to me, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, murders her husband, does all of this crazy, insane stuff, and doesn't even think about the sin attached to it. It wasn't until his friend Nathan came in and said, hey, so I heard this story about this dude. He had some sheep, and he goes through this whole thing about the exact same way that David had gone through his sin with Bathsheba and asks David's counsel on the matter, and David says, he should be put to death. And Nathan says, you're that man. And it was in that moment that he didn't even realize his own sin. Because when we are idle, we find ourselves looking to our idols for verification and for status in this life. And that is why we need each other. More than ever, the church needs one another. I need you just as much as you need me. If not, I need you more than you need me. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is the level of accountability that we're asking from you to this church Have you noticed how good you are at justifying your behavior? If you've had little kids or if you currently have little kids, you can figure this out really quickly. I can easily conjure up in my mind this version of who I am that is confronted with my sin, but I can easily breeze right past it. When my children see me as angry, I justify it as then just listen and I wouldn't respond this way. How often do I tell them that? A lot. I respond to my kids in anger because of their sin. I'm not judgmental. I'm discerning. I have many good excuses, by the way. I might write a book on it, and it might be a bestseller, unfortunately, because we're all good at making excuses for justifying the way we treat other people. It's always their fault. It's always the other person's fault. It's always the other network's fault. It's never our fault. Let's never take blame for the situations that I've put myself in. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I know I'm going to have to keep fighting my sinful nature. To pretend otherwise is delusional. Another issue is that we all too often mislead those around us. It happens all too often, we don't even realize it. When you meet up with someone and they ask the question, how are you doing? We usually respond with something like, I'm good, I'm fine, everything's good. And four different people this morning asked me, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And two of them are like, no, 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 like, how are you doing? It's like, okay, you know, confession time, (laughs) told them what's going on. I'm like, yeah, I'm dealing with a lot of things, but I don't want to deal with that right now. Let's talk about it later. We often respond even without thinking that way. I'm good. It's fine. But then you have a friend who had some vision or some dream last night, some premonition that came forward, and they follow up with another question, how are you really doing? that's when you start to break down and cry and sit down and sing kumbaya and hold hands and that whole thing you see we need people like that we need friends people close to us in the church your small group that you're going to sign up to join right right okay and anyone no one okay cool we have a lot of small groups coming up a women's study at my house a a young adult women's group at jess's house a young adult men's a men's study that meets here on wednesdays young or. Uh, what, is, what are we calling it? Families with young kids. We're gonna do that, my wife and I. If you are a family, you got young kids, we have young kids, let's throw them upstairs in our loft and let them play toys and go crazy. We don't need to watch them all night and we'll talk. And you can cry, I can cry, and it'll be great. Join a small group. You need friends like that. You and I need to surround ourselves with people who are willing to call us out when the Spirit presses it into our hearts to be a safe haven they are looking for. Confession helps other people see they aren't alone in the fight. And can I be honest with you this morning? I'm a sinner. I am in in need of God's grace. Again, ask my wife, ask my kids. They often see my sin. If you want a play-by-play of what my sin is like Monday through Saturday, ask them. They see it all the time. They're often the recipient of my sin. And saying I'm fine every time someone asks how I am can make those who are struggling with sin and wondering where they can go for support and accountability feel even more alone. Confession can be the most difficult aspect of prayer because it causes us to come to terms with who we really are. So three things we should know about confession. Number one, It requires joy confession requires joy you're like wait I thought I was supposed to cry during my confession I thought I was supposed to be like very somber and like very down and depressed about my life you see that's where me and my Catholic friends disagree on things my Catholic friends go to their father and to their priest and they confess their sins to their priest and he apparently has the power to do that I'm like well I'm just going to go to Christ because he's right here like I can go to him you should too I really think you should. Love my Catholic friends, but they're wrong. You see, that's what we need is joy. When we choose to confess our sin to each other, we're saying, I know what God says about this, and I know that I've gone wrong against him in this area. You see, many of us are finding that it's less of a challenge to be open with total strangers on social media than it is with those closest to us in real life. The comfort we feel from virtual friends who say things like, oh, I do the same thing, it's not that big of a deal. Saying something like, no one's perfect, which is a lot more palatable than having to talk with someone in a difficult way about an encounter that we experience on a regular basis. The complete stranger who happens to be reading our thoughts on a screen is not going to join us in our struggle against temptation. And Jesus is saying, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You want to know how to get out of temptation? Confession. You want to be delivered from evil? Confess it. The complete stranger who's reading your thoughts through a screen cannot help you against your struggle against temptation. Number two, it requires courage. Not only joy of knowing that my sin has also been forgiven, and I'm thankful for that, and there are brothers and sisters who are dealing with a lot of the same things that I struggle through. That is a joyful thing to know in my confession that I'm not alone. Number two, it requires courage. Confession must become a normal routine for you. It must become a block of time in your schedule to constantly seek to confess. See your sin for what it really is. Sin has been defined by Cornelius Plantiga in his book, The Breviary on Sin. It's a book on sin, like what is sin? And he says that sin is the disruption of shalom. Shalom is what God created in the garden. Shalom was the peace that God gave to Adam and Eve and to himself to live in the garden and to be blessed by the fruit of it. But when we realize that sin is what we've done to miss the mark, that I can never hit the bullseye, it's taking sin seriously enough to confess it to others that will cause you and help you to grow to hate your sin more. Find friends who won't be shocked by your sin nor try to justify it. Find friends and community who will listen to you and then pray for you. Confession of sin is not complete if it only results in regret. When we acknowledge our sin, it opens up to the joy of the gospel. It's the forgiveness of God in Christ is something that I need to hear from my friends about. There's no need for me to dwell in my self-pity. Boo-hoo, poor is me, my sin, I just can't stop, I'm so sorry. Rather, I can leave my sins at the cross where they were paid for. Colossians 3:12 through14, "Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together. And then thirdly, it requires community. Colossians 2.13 says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. After we've acknowledged our guilt, after we've asked for God's mercy, we've reaffirmed our faith in God's unending love and forgiveness, then we are ready to go into battle. Friends, that care about me, keep tabs on me. They keep tabs on you. They pray for me often. They offer concrete assistance while I fight my sinful tendencies. But until I see Jesus face to face, I know there will be challenges that I cannot overcome, that you cannot overcome. However, there are also challenges that he gently helps us overcome. Our constant struggle together allows us to witness God's answer to prayer and to rejoice in those answers as a community. And what's interesting about the Lord's prayer when he says forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. For him to forgive our debts is to send them away. Essentially it's using that word divorce. When Jesus says I have forgiven you of your sin, he's saying I have divorced you from your sin. It is no longer a part of who you are. And the debt that we owe is the legal dues. It's the offensive Sin that he is divorcing us from. And then when it says, as we have also forgiven our debtors, it is telling us that we must leave behind whatever sin was done against us. How good are you at not only justifying your sin, but also seeing the sin in other people. And even when you have said, yes, I forgive you months, years down the road, you still cannot forget about the sin that was done against you. Because that person owes a debt to us, we want to keep that person in debt to us. Augustine famously prayed, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. How many of us can identify with that? Lord, free me from this sin, but just not yet, just not right now, just a little bit longer. You see, we can fear that confessing sin to another person will lead to accountability And we're not sure we're quite that serious about giving up that particular sin. 1 John 1 is something that we've also looked at today in light of Matthew 6. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1 implies opposition to light. You can read it later on. But it's impossible if you know that darkness is not just a lack of light. It's impossible for darkness and light to coexist. And so living in the shadows is a rejection of the liberation that God provides to you in the light. Confession also requires that we desire for people to know about God too. Confession is not just a personal invitation between you and God. Remember, the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to pray like Jesus, to model Jesus' life, to become like Jesus in the process. And so if we are going to confess, we must also want others to confess as well. Confession is not just a personal invitation between you and God. You're not dating God. You are entering a family with God, and God says, bring more family members in. So regardless of how you feel about living out your faith or telling others about your faith, regardless of how others might peg you as narrow-minded for believing those things, we are going to other people saying, Please adopt my Christian beliefs. Please adopt my belief in Christ and make him your Lord and Savior. We can feel kind of oppressive in a way. I don't know if they want to hear it. Well, it doesn't matter. It seems incredibly narrow-minded, and some might even call it a hatred, but I can tell you this. If you say, I have a relationship with Christ, and it's a good relationship with Christ, but I don't want to tell anyone about it. It's pretty private. It helps me, but I'm not sure it's going to help you. If what you have is not compelling you to tell others what you have, what you have isn't very powerful. It's not the same thing the Apostle John had when he read in in 1 John 1. As Tim Keller says, you have to want anybody you care about to know about him too. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, as an ambassador for Christ, the love of God compels me to share Christ. And so if you say you have a relationship with Christ, but you keep it private, I'm not too sure it's the same thing about confession that John had talked about in 1 John. You see, we easily share memes across platforms, a video of some influencer who hits the note perfectly about the stereotype of a stay-at-home mom or a dad who loves to smoke meat and mow lawns. Duh, who doesn't like to do those things. The way you know you have a right relationship with God is you want other people to have the same stuff we share all kinds of things all the time. Bro, check out this meme. I have a group with some guys in here, and we share memes. That's all it is. And then, like, hopefully it's like, bro, you doing good? <laughs> like, or a little side text from one of them, like, hey, how can I pray for you? Like, yeah, that's great. Keep sharing your memes or whatever. But also, can you be honest about some of the sins that you're struggling with? This is what happens through confession. So how can this be ours? How can confession be a daily rhythm in my life? You see, you will only have a generic relationship with God if you only keep him private in your own life. No one knows about Christ. No one knows that you're a believer. No one knows that you practice following Jesus. And so you can have that generic relationship with God, but you won't have that personal aspect of it until we understand what 1 John 1, 9 actually says. And I'll wrap up with this. There was a story about a French philosopher in the 18th century, And near the end of his life, as an atheist, he was dying and he had spent his entire life debating against the faith, debating against Christianity. And some of his colleagues, while on his deathbed, had asked him, you're about to die. Aren't you worried that you were wrong about God this whole time? And the man on his deathbed responds responds and says, no, I have always thought there is a God. But I'm not worried because God will forgive me. That's his job. And so some of that is true, that God is forgiving. But if we read 1 John 1, 9 again, it says that he is faithful and what? Just. That he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so he's essentially saying, I believe in a merciful God. He will overlook my sin. He believed in a loving God, but he didn't allow the love of God to transform him. It didn't change his mind it didn't change his relationships. It didn't affect the way he lived. We often think that's what 1, 1 John 1, 1.9 says. But when you go to the next few verses in 1 John 2, it says, my dear, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And so essentially, we have to remember that justice overcomes mercy at some point. Imagine a few scenarios, if you will. A policeman who knows you. They know your car. They know your job. They know you're a Christian. You get pulled over by them, and they're like, oh, what are you, oh, man, like, dude, I don't want to have to pull you over. Like, just... What's going on? Like, why are you doing this? Why were you speeding? You know, like, this is the area I work. Like, what are you doing? Maybe you get a warning the first time. You were running late. He totally gets it. He lets you off. You're a good person, sort of thing. I'll let this one slide. So now you think, oh, shoot, I got an in with the cop. Like, now I can just act however I want. I can act a fool and still get away with it. But you've abused the system. And now, because you continue to act and to practice the same thing that let you off the first time, you think that the tenth time you've done it, he's going to let you off again. And now he's like, dude, I can't, I can't keep letting you go. Like, I have to give you a ticket. You've taken for granted the grace that was extended to you. I have to give you a ticket. Or think of a spouse who continues to have adulterous commitments to other women, and over and over again. And the first time was like... I, I forgive you, I love you, let's work through this, let's go get counseling, let's go through this whole thing. But the husband or the wife, they keep committing adultery over and over and over and over again. At some point, justice is going to have to overcome mercy. You see, when we think, well, I can just keep on sinning because I have an advocate, I have grace, but when you take for granted that grace, it's no longer grace, it's justice. And the church doesn't always like to talk about the justice of God. Like, oh, why are we talking about this? Because that's who he is. He is so just and so holy and so loving. At some point, God is going to have to enact his justice. If you come to God through Christ when you sin, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. God will forgive you because he is just. He is forgiving you because he is just because only he is able to do so. He is so perfect and so holy, yet so loving that he surrendered himself to the enemy. It cost him everything, and now it's our turn to come into the practice of confession to allow it to change who we are and how we view the world. That what we have, we want to share with others. Because we know that God demands justice and is willing that none should perish, Second Peter 3, but that all should reach repentance. It's time to confess. So remember, be joyful because God has more for you than you thought he did. Be courageous because confessing something is wrong because, I'm sorry, be courageous because confessing something that is wrong is hurtful but necessary. And be ready for community because you can't do it alone. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. At Garden City, we believe the gospel has the power to transform lives, including yours. If you want to support our ministry and the message of the gospel, you can donate at gardencitychurch.co forward slash give.